What are decentralized clinical trials? What are the benefits of decentralized clinical trials? Why are decentralized clinical trials the way of the future? These questions are on my mind since I had the first two recordings on clinical development. We discussed those topics very, very briefly. In this episode, I am happy that Emily Mitchell joins me. Emily is executive director in ICANN's Decentralized Clinical Trials team, and she discusses with me the benefits of these trials and what needs to be considered to ensure these benefits are realized. The other big benefit is if you think about where a clinical site might be located, so a large hospital or a large research institution, it limits the availability of patients that are in a surrounding area. So there may be folks who are only comfortable traveling one hour. Uh, by making it so that it's available to them in their own home or in their own area or region, now you can cover a larger span. You make it so research is more equitable and more available to those individuals. And you have, therefore, a larger diversity, either in socioeconomic um, or in ethnicity and race uh, from that po patient population, and ultimately is providing our sponsors better data um, because it's giving them what the real world utilization would look like once they actually have their product approved. Emily Mitchell has over 15 years of experience in the CRO industry, working in data management, project management, and clinical operations. During her tenure at ICANN, Emily partnered with an Actigraph eventer to run a pilot study with employees on the wear compliance and comparison of a medical-grade activity tracker to a commercial-grade version. Just prior to the pandemic, Emily helped set up and support the first fully decentralized trial at ICANN. She has continued to present at various conferences around the best practices for decentralized studies, ensuring patient and site burn is minimized while optimizing data capture. Emily is an active member of the Society of Clinical Data Management and has presented about decentralized trials at numerous conferences. ICANN is the only CRO to offer all services and deliver end-to-end integrated decentralized clinical trial solutions. ICANN supported the delivery of the first decentralized clinical trial that has had positive published results in a medical journal, Nature Medicine. In this episode, we are talking about decentralized clinical trials, how they benefit patients, the impact on budgeting, successful deployment of clinical trials, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy the episode the same way as I did. Emily, it's good to see you. How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm fine. I'm very fine. Summer is back here in Vienna. How is life at your place? Uh, fall has finally started to hit a little bit and I welcome it. It's, it's a nice change from the heat. You don't have any heat anymore? No, not this week. Not this week. And how was last week? Uh, very hot. <laughs> <laughs> we have today, we are on a Celsius scale. Um, so we have uh, 30, 31, 32, 34, 35. And I believe in the city, when I walk down the streets, it's about, it's about 40. Oh, very, very warm. Very, very uh, summerly. If, can you say that in English? <laughs> I don't yeah. think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, Emily, you work for ICANN. Can you give me a little bit uh, of background, what your role is and what ICANN PLC is doing? Sure. So um, I am the executive director of our decentralized clinical trial strategic operations team. That is a big mouthful for a title, um, but it's a large group that we have that's sitting over here. So our team starts at the very beginning with working with our sponsors on evaluating protocols and drug pipelines to strategically come up with 
the best approach to decentralize their clinical trials. Um, so that means that our team is either helping support fully decentralized clinical trials, mm -hmm. hybrid clinical trials, or deployment of decentralized elements within a clinical trial. So whether that's just a technology piece, um, in-home health nursing, things along those lines, those are all elements that allow us to do decentralization. Um, you mentioned a very important topic, I guess, these days, decentralized clinical trials. I started in 2006 in the life science industry, and uh, I think the clinical trials, as far as I remember, were anything anything then decentralized. So usually the patients or the healthy volunteers were brought to this site and mm -hmm. then everything happened at one site or multiple sites but sometimes it was very tricky to get the patients there in time and i never heard the term decentralized clinical trials before 2021 when i did or prepared for a podcast recording with a, a clinical organization in germany um Can you explain in simple terms to me what decentralized clinical trials are? Why are they so, so special? Sure. Um, so let me give you my simple definition of a decentralized clinical trial. So I define a decentralized clinical trial as being um, a research project uh, for medication, new uh, products that is conducted within your ecosystem, mm -hmm. meaning you don't have to travel beyond what you are already doing to participate. So that means if you have a physician that you see or a lab that is local to you that you want to go to, or if you don't want to leave your house at all, you can still participate because we will make it fit into your life versus making you go to the research centers to participate in the trial. You said uh, you make the clinical trial fit into the patient's life mm -hmm. and not the other way around. Does it really work? Yep. What other benefits are do you see in clinical trials? Um, the, so clinical trials? the other big benefit is if you think about where a clinical site might be located, so a large hospital or a large research institution, it limits the availability of patients that are in a surrounding area. So there may be folks who are only comfortable traveling one hour. Uh, by making it so that it's available to them in their own home or in their own area or region, now you can cover a larger span. You make it so research is more equitable and more available to those individuals. And you have, therefore, a larger diversity, either in socioeconomic um, or in ethnicity and race uh, from that po patient population and ultimately is providing our sponsors better data um, because it's giving them what the real world utilization would look like once they actually have their product approved. Uh, I'm curious, you mentioned data. Um... Is that uh, I still have a hard time to get out of my old mindset. So from uh, everything is centralized and you have all um, in one place, right? From uh, the consent forms to data collection, everything is standardized in the hospital and the people make sure that everything uh, follows the guidelines. Mm -hmm. uh, have you seen firsthand clinical trials in reality or is this still a, a theoretical construct? No, it's definitely being done in reality. So um, ICON actually conducted one of the first fully decentralized clinical trials that had positive publication results. Mm -hmm. um, and it was done before the pandemic actually hit. Really? Um, so we had our first site activated uh, the week that the U.S. shut down. Mm -hmm. um, so we came up with the concept, came up with the approach and started to do site identification and enrollment right as the world was shutting down um, due to the COVID pandemic. So we've seen that it didn't need to be done because of a pandemic, 
but the pandemic didn't slow down the research. We still hit our outcomes and hit our needs. We had positive results. Um, and it was proven to be a great methodology that we could do. We're now doing it again. Um, and every time that we, we go and operationalize these, we learn something new. So whether it's um, how best to approach and find the patients, how to keep them engaged. Um, you don't want them to forget that they're participating in a trial because they don't have to travel somewhere. So now, mm -hmm. yes, it's the convenience of being done in your own home. But <laughs> as I'm sure you probably are very familiar with, uh, you might put something in the washer and forget about it for a couple of hours. We don't want them to do that with the clinical research trial as well. So it's how can we utilize technology to help remind them about things mm -hmm. that are needed and when they the data should be collected and how we can continue to um, ensure participation. These are important points. Before we dive into these points further, let's stay with the basics a little bit. Uh, I thought that decentralized clinical trials are a result of the pandemic. So everything happened in the pandemic. People started thinking about it. Uh, how can we still conduct trials when we don't know if the sites are open or not? The I remember the first lockdown in Austria was quite tough. Um, most hospitals I, I was aware of only accepted patients for COVID, but mm -hmm. no other patients. So, uh, I think clinical trials in Austria, the traditional way centralized didn't happen. And you mentioned before, a couple of minutes before that you already prepared before the pandemic started for decentralized clinical trials. Why did you do that? What was the motivation to, to, uh, to be innovative in clinical trials? So the patient population that we were trying to hit was a population where it wasn't easy for them to get to the sites. So that was our motivation is if people can't participate because they can't travel, how can we still have them included? Um, and that, I think, hits in a lot of different areas. So whether that is those who are very, very sick, those who are immunocompromised, those who have a rare disease and can't travel far distances, or in the case of COVID, those who uh, are now affected by a pandemic. So mm. it really had that added benefit of being able to think about how easily can we do this? Now, COVID did present other challenges because you had to have nurses potentially go into people's homes and not everybody was willing to let a nurse in who didn't know where they've been, what their vaccination status was, or vice versa, a nurse not wanting to go in because they didn't know the patient's vaccination status or where they've been. Um, but I think with some of the mitigation factors we've put in, it's we've gotten past that piece. And, and now it's um, it's not there because of the pandemic it's staying around because the pandemic proved that it could be done and that it was successful. Now, it's a great achievement. What do you think uh, are decentralized clinical trials increasing the opportunity to deliver clinical research as a care option? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. I think that is exactly what the outcome is going to be, is that it's it's offering clinical research as a care option. It's allowing more physicians to participate in clinical research. It's allowing them to find new ways to treat their patients. Um, and it's really opening up the doors for patients to find new treatment options as well. So um, patients finding a, a research study and advocating for themselves or physicians now having access um, to new treatments that are maybe investigational treatments, but still have grounds for scientific improvement of their patient population. Um, when I think about the logistics, so I can imagine the patient uh, participates in a trial. 
uh, mostly from home or at clinics close to home. But what about the logistics? I mean, especially in drug development, isn't that uh, tough? Tough to deliver the drugs uh, at to multiple. I mean, they are not even delivered to sites, or so they are delivered to the homes of the patients. So there's a couple of ways you can do it. Um, mm-hmm. You can have it delivered directly to the patient's home. Um, we've done that. Uh, it definitely requires infrastructure, but luckily there are um, large organizations like UPS Health um, or Markin, who's a division of UPS Health, that allow us to be able to do that. Um, there are also the capabilities, depending upon the classification of the drug, for a in-home nurse to be the one that is delivering the product to the patient as well. And then uh, the third option is that the pharmacies at the sites have the capability of also doing direct courier to the participants. So where it originates versus how it gets there, um, there's different options, which helps you do it at a global capacity because there's different regulatory requirements. So some some countries require you to have a pharmacist being the one that's dispensing that. So if the pharmacist dispenses via a local courier, then that is allowed versus having it done through a depot and a large uh, shipping facility. Mike, you sparked my curiosity. If uh, you don't want to answer a question, just let me know. Just, just imagine now the hospital. So before the pandemic, I mean, uh, the healthcare system, uh, as I experienced it in Austria, uh, has currently a tough time being financed. So I just thought ran, ran from my from my mind while you were speaking. What was the reception from from the hospital personnel when you came up with the idea? We need to be innovative. Let's uh, do the clinical trials, uh, make it easier for the patients, but uh, it's not more work for uh, the hospital personnel. How was the reception in reality? Honestly, I think if they have uh, the ability to staff up appropriately, then they're not as hesitant to it, but you are correct. Uh, There was a lot of burden and a lot of work for folks and not enough compensation for it. Um, I think that we're, we're starting to level out in that area. So the, um, the expectation of what is required of a physician and a pharmacist uh, in a decentralized trial. So while they're not physically having to see the patients, it allows them to have a larger volume or take on other tasks. Um, it, it's balancing out better. Mm. No, I heard from, from a friend in, in London. He said uh, that uh, a lot of his work can be done uh, remote. So via telemedicine, uh, he said it was before the pandemic. It was a conversation before the pandemic. Um he said it's always um, a little bit tricky to get his patients from all over the world to London uh, for follow-up visits. So he also saw the benefits and I think uh, it's probably something that you also see in your work. Uh, how is it uh, for the patients? Um, you mentioned a few benefits. Um, how did the patients uh, uh, respond to your idea of doing decentralized clinical trials? Um, the response has been fantastic from the patient perspective. Um, I think everybody is very eager to be able to participate in research um, if there's a benefit for them and if it doesn't put increased burden on them. By making it so that somebody maybe who does shift work um, can now participate because they don't have to worry about when they have to be actually at their job and they can do it when it's convenient for them. That's really opened up um, who can participate and who's available. And that's piqued a lot of interest, especially from that diversity perspective as well, too. Can we dive a little bit deeper in the diversity perspective? How do decentralized clinical trials benefit in that area? So we have seen... um, in that one case study that I was talking about, that very first fully decentralized, it was not a goal of that study, but it happened to be a, a, a positive outcome that we saw a four-time improvement in diverse um, patient population. Typically, when we look at a traditional brick-and-mortar clinical research, and what we've seen over the years is that you are 
targeting or or gathering information mainly from a middle-aged white male population by making it so that it is more convenient to participate. um, We saw a almost equal distribution of individuals in uh, gender. So we had about 46% Mm. female um, and 54% male in that study. We saw a larger age span. So we had all the way from around 26 years old up to 90 year olds participating in that research. Don't let technology fool you. Um, 90-year-olds know how to use the technology just as well as we do. Um, And it it really made it so that there was that increased diversity also from a race perspective as well, um, where, you know, targeted African-American population in that given indication may typically have been 12%. We saw it hitting more towards the 17% mark. That's very interesting. So before the centralized clinical trials, uh, the patient population was mostly white male, middle-aged participants. Mm-hmm. And then with your approach, with your new approach, uh, you see more diversity in the studies. I had a conversation, not an argument, I had a conversation last uh, week with a friend where we discussed what the reasons might be that uh, usually the volunteers in clinical trials and the patients are white male participants. Did you find some reasons why this shifted so much and why we didn't see these dynamics before? Why is it so different with the centralized trials? Um, I don't understand exactly why we saw such a large white male population. Uh, I believe now what we're seeing in and some of the uh, feedback we've conducted as surveys from the participants is the reason they chose to participate was that it was easier. It didn't detract from their day-to-day life. Mm-hmm. Um, so myself as a, a middle-aged female, I find it very hard to travel around outside of my normal work-life balance just because of kids and work and grocery store and all of that. Whereas if I could participate in a study and it didn't actually take away from any of that, I'd be more likely to do it versus if I have to drive an hour, sit in the office for an hour, drive back for an hour. That takes three hours out of my day, three hours I didn't have. And I think that's where we're seeing um, the ability to capture a larger demographic. Something else that we're looking at is when we're um, now doing surveys of participants in each of our new decentralized trial is we're not only looking at the age, the race, the um, gender, but we're also looking at where do those individuals consider themselves to be physically located? Are you in an urban setting, a suburban setting, or a rural setting to see how far outside of where normally we would see clinical research being conducted in more of that urban suburban setting? Are we really being able to penetrate into that rural area as well? Isn't that a great development for the scientists and for the regulators that you capture much more data from a diverse group of patients? It, it is. And I think it's going to help the uh, the pharmaceutical companies as well, because their drugs are going to go to all of those patients, whether they were included in the clinical research or not. Now, if they have the added benefit, they have been included in the clinical research before it goes to market. It, it avoids the question of, is there a patient population that potentially was missed in the research? It's um, a conversation that I had, I think it was 16 years ago when I started in life science. I have a business background, so I didn't know much about uh, drug development back then. I got a little bit better in the last 16 years, but uh, (laughs) not much. So one of the questions was when I started working in the life science industry, um, why do we just recruit uh, a few volunteers for a phase one study and then we let's say 200 to 300 for a phase two study and uh, at best um, 16 years ago uh, for a phase three study, let's say a few hundreds more, so up to thousands. 
And the response was, uh, it's not that we don't want to recruit more. Uh, we are happy when we get 1,000 or we are happy when we get to 200 because it's so difficult to bring um uh, people to a trial, to a centralized trial. Do you see also with the centralized trials a dynamic that you potentially can recruit much more uh, patients early on in studies and get uh, a much larger, uh, much more data points? Uh, for sure. If we look at metrics of what we've been doing with our, our current decentralized clinical trial, a lot of our outreach or our um, interest gathering has been through social media. So we have all the click rates that show how many people were interested, how many people clicked on the ads, how many people then created profiles. Um, and it creates a, a funnel of that potential interest all the way down into those who are actually going to participate. That top of that funnel is higher than we ever expected. Um, so folks are able to go out there and find the information and click on it and become educated and then have that initial pre-screening call where they understand what it's going to take for them to participate. Um, it, it is definitely shown that, that the patient populations are out there, they're interested, they want to participate and now we're not just waiting for one physician to refer one or two patients. It's now those patients are finding us and we're pairing them up with a physician. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Money is all around us and we think about it more than almost every other aspect of our lives. But how can we make more of it and what's our drive for building wealth beyond just the numbers in our bank account? Join us on the Make More podcast as our host, Matt Heslin, brings to you a dynamic lineup of experts in the world of investing, business, health, and beyond. Together, they unpack the secrets to not just surviving, but thriving in today's economy. It's about more than just wealth. It's about crafting life experiences, seizing opportunities, and building a legacy. Subscribe now to the Make More with Matt Heslin podcast and join us every week for new expert insights and inspiration. It's, um, I mean, social media, it's hard to imagine, I think, 16 years ago, the there was no tendency towards the digital world. And I think mostly uh, doctors recruited uh, their patients and uh, people they knew uh, in one-to-one -one conversations. And now you can really address the whole, the whole world. Did I get it right, the picture? That's exactly it. Um, you know, you can go on to Facebook or Google ads and there it is advertising. Um, do you have this, this indication? Would you be interested in participating in clinical research? Click here. Um, we have ads running on Instagram, for instance, and um, it's been fantastic to see the response rates of those who are clicking and engaging with them. Do you like this episode so far? Then please, please follow the podcast. Enjoy the rest of the show. That leads me to the next question. Uh, it was also some memories from my past. Um, I always had the feeling when I when we talked about statistics that uh, one of the toughest problems to solve in multi-center trials was gathering data in a uh, useful uh, format that uh, got all everything filled out. And sometimes the people said. Um, Many trials are bound to fail because we don't get the data that we want to get in the form we want to have them. And now you say you do it decentralized. So I assume that also patients are required uh, to fill in the data forms. Um, what? How about the quality of data? Is it is it sufficient? Is it better? Is it worse? What what development do you see in that area? It's interesting. Um, so you're right. It was up to physicians previously to fill out forms and, and ensure that there was quality in the data. Um, we've taken out that transcription step. Mm -hmm. So now the data is coming directly from the source. So we're looking at ways that we can collect the data that isn't going to create gaps in the data, um, perhaps create a little more noise because the volume of data is so large. 
but that's where some of the machine learning comes in mm-hmm. is how do you create affiliations with uh, two or three different time points altogether. So you might be looking at a wearable, an ePro, and con meds all at the same time. Or you may be looking at um, lab work, an ePro, and um, you know notes that were taken as part of a telehealth visit. So it's larger volume of data, but the quality of data and the correlation between the data mm-hmm. is helping to ensure that there is less bias and potentially less placebo response as well. Um, You would see a lot more placebo response if you were looking only at ePro data. But now because you can look at ePro data and the blood work together and the the physician taking notes on what their their facial expressions were, you get a lot more tying together, correlating and understanding of was there a placebo response or was there not? So it's much easier to gather more information from people involved in clinical trials, thanks to machine learning, artificial intelligence. And less burden, right? Because you don't have somebody writing it down on a piece of paper, (laughs) somebody else typing it into a computer. Um, Now it's either being put right into a tablet uh, by a home health nurse Um, pulling it from their electronic medical records uh, or getting it directly from the labs or directly from a wearable or a sensor. And the wearable and sensor market is an untapped market at the moment. It just keeps expanding. Mm. And the things that you can evaluate with it are truly amazing. Yeah, automated, automated data collection. I think Apple Watch, I have one here is going in that direction or Apple the Conga. Yep. And a friend of mine, he is uh, doing work on automated blood pressure measurements. So he's a company in Austria and Graz. So he's doing research and development in that area for decades now. You just imagine, I mean, the amount of data that you're gathering these days, um, trying it 20 years ago without artificial intelligence. Say, Here you have 1,000 forms. <laughs> Please fill it in properly. <laughs> Not much automation back then. No, 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 manual work. Um, how is the reception with sponsors? I mean, I'm just thinking now it's on the cost side. So I have a financing background, business background. So the first thoughts that pops in my mind is, okay, we do now decentralized clinical trials and not centralized clinical trials. We gather much more data from much more patients. Um, are we talking now about 10x cost uh, or the same cost? So how is the reality of decentralized clinical trials? Are they more expensive or uh, doesn't it, does it make really a difference? So we actually haven't been finding that they're more expensive. So if you think about the fact that before everything was centralized, it was on site, you had to send a monitor there, you were doing mm-hmm. source document verification and things along those lines. That's now all gone, right? There's nothing, there's there's no site anymore. Um, So all of those costs can be transferred into other areas such as the technology pieces. So what Mm -hmm. we have seen is that fully decentralized clinical trials tend to be cost neutral or slightly less than a traditional study. Really? Really. Um, Which I was kind of surprised, but we've done a lot of analysis on this. Because it is one of the key points that our clients have been asking us, yes, but how much is this going to cost me in comparison? Um, For a hybrid clinical trial, that's where we're seeing it's much more cost neutral. So if you're only removing pieces of it um, and keeping other elements still on site, you still have that requirement of needing to have monitoring um, of source document verification and source document review. But it's not as frequent. It's maybe more data-driven instead of frequency-driven. And therefore, those adjustments are having it be a little more cost-neutral. It sounds to me like you found the holy grail of clinical trials. So it's more data. You include more patients. You bring more diversity into patient groups, which brings a lot of value to the to the sponsor at less cost. But it doesn't fit all studies. 
Yeah, unfortunately, but uh, there are some, and you mentioned, but the others are cost neutral. So it's not that uh, it's 10x more cost so that the sponsor is faced with uh, having the need to raise much more money. If we talk about life science companies or early stage companies, or on the other hand, pharma phase four studies that don't need to up their budget, budget 10 times. So they won't have no, a tough time negotiating. Right. It, it is. It's very feasible to continue in their fundraising efforts in a similar vein and capacity that they've done to date. Um, it's not going to be that they need to go out and find more capital uh, funding by any means because they can still do it within their their same budget. That's that's really great news because I think uh, I mean it, it's it's a no brainer for me then to to negotiate with investors or within a pharma company to say look we get more data. We get higher quality into the data. Uh, we have more patients from different patient groups um, at same cost, so it's uh, it's more beneficial. Uh, which indications, in your opinion, um, are suitable for decentralized clinical trials? Can you do it with every clinical trial, so in every indication, or are there special areas where you say, where you say uh, these areas qualify more than others? So the very first thing we look at is the safety profile of the compound we're investigating. If we don't know a whole lot about it, mm -hmm. we're not going to recommend fully decentralization. Um, so first in human studies will always still be first in human studies run in a clinic. Um, but if we find out that, that that product has a safe profile, then typically where we can see this having a really great fit from a therapeutic area is in a cardiovascular space, um, general medicine, women's health, um, rare disease, depending upon the actual individual disease, um, but the rare disease because it removes the need of travel or, or excessive amounts of travel where it's a little trickier is the oncology space um, because of the toxicities that tend to be associated with the therapies and the infusion requirements. Um, yes, we can still do those in homes. There can be nurses that can go out there and do that. But now you're talking about having somebody sit in your home for potentially hours upon hours. Um, is there the return on the investment from that perspective then? But I think you can also include then uh, more sites that are not specialized in clinical trials. So it can also be done then in any hospital, basically, that uh, is willing to, uh, let's say, host patients that want to participate in a clinical trial but can't travel uh, to a specialist site. And that's something that we work very closely with our sponsors on and have developed trainings for those research-naive physicians so that they understand what a clinical trial is, what good clinical practices are, what are the regulatory requirements that they need to follow. Um, so they can't go off and just treat how they might want to treat. They have to follow a protocol. Um, but here's the result of what they are able to then offer their patient. Can we stay a little bit uh, of in the situation of fundraising or negotiating budgets uh, for clinical trials? So let's look at the sponsor side. Um, you mentioned a few points, and I would like to direct the conversation in that in that area. One of the key success factors for early stage companies. And when I talk about early stage, I'm talking about companies up to clinical phase two uh, that have about 50, 60 employees max uh, are not pharma companies, but solely focused on moving new chemical, uh, new drug uh, components, to new drug candidates, now I have it, new drug candidates from uh, research into clinical phase two. And one of the key success factors is definitely the duration of a clinical trial. So anything that is longer in the plans than one year has a high chance of not getting funded. Do you see also um, timelines getting uh, faster and shorter with the centralized clinical trials compared to the centralized versions? Um Definitely, we have the potential of seeing that. Again, I think it's dependent upon indication and things, but um, we talked a little bit about the fact that 
because your physicians aren't having to physically see the patients at every single visit, they have a capacity to see a larger volume of patients, which means the number of sites that you may need could be fewer. So therefore, the onboarding of those number of sites takes a shorter amount of time. So in that startup period, you can see us shrinking it from that perspective. You can also see a shrinking on that back end where you're doing the database closure and lock because the more data that comes from primary sources, the less cleaning you can do to it because it is what it is. It's more the what are the implications, what is the data telling us, and where does it correlate uh, or where are we seeing anomalies so that getting the point from our last patient out to when we can lock a database can also be shortened as well. So while it may seem like it's not huge durations month-wise, um, it is weeks and weeks in an overall year perspective of, of what you had said, Christian, you know, gives us that that little bit of time frame there that we can shrink it up and have it be a little more appealing to our sponsors that say instead of 52 weeks, we can do this in 40. That's, I mean, that's a uh, great news. If you can really do it in 40 instead of 52, it's a huge uh, upside compared to the, to the old world uh, that usually investors are very happy about. Uh, let's stay with the sponsor side. Um, I mean, also the typical conversation is uh, that we raise funds, then we get the money wired, and one week later, we want to start a clinical trial, uh, ideally. So without much preparation, it's uh, the time when we start calling then uh, zeros, companies who can conduct clinical trials and say, yeah, you have one week to prepare. Uh, let's talk about timelines. What is your recommendation to a sponsor? Uh, who wants to integrate uh, a decentralized model in a clinical trial, how much uh, time should they factor into their plans for uh, getting in touch with you, uh, discussing whether the indication and uh, the setup and the protocol is really suitable for a decentralized clinical trial? And what does that mean in, in, in terms of work that uh, is coming to the sponsor? So when they're out there going and getting their funding, they need to be talking to us at the same time. Um, once a protocol has already been drafted and developed, it's almost too late um, because there aren't a ton of, especially those smaller life science biotech companies that have the true understanding of the gamut of what can be decentralized, mm -hmm. the regulatory implications. Um, one of the benefits of working for a large organization like we have is that we do have all of those resources available to us. So we know what the regulatory landscape looks like across the world. We understand what services we have internally that we can help leverage, which then speeds things up. And what is going to be of interest to physicians and to patients. Um, so really developing a protocol at the very beginning uh, to understand where they want to do and how far decentralized they want to go versus trying to retrofit it where they have provided us a protocol and said, okay, how can you decentralize this? That's the challenge. They're going to have to write an amendment because a lot of times the thing, the assessments that are in there aren't always going to be written in a capacity that allows for decentralization. That's that's true. That's true. So your recommendation is also to integrate um, your company early in the discussion. Um, do I interpret it the right way when I say before a company even thinks about starting a clinical trial? So I'm talking about preclinical work, for example, also to get your mindset and your recommendation into the setup of the company for clinical trials. So would it be an ideal point for you also to come already um, to the meetings with a company when they are still in preclinics uh, before the protocol is written? For sure. So we have an entire um, sector that focuses on the drug development pipeline, has expertise in helping make recommendations. And if we can give them recommendations on trial approaches, it may be that instead of having to do multiple phase twos and then a phase three, we can limit the number of studies they have to run overall um, based upon some creative concepts and utilization of decentralized elements 
It'll give them more power to their overall pipeline uh, and their overall study approach uh, versus just doing a one-off review of a protocol here and there. So basically, you should be part of a company then. So it's um, it, it's um, not like this the usual service provider model that um, um, you get a call when uh, the work is really, uh, should really be done. So it's basically being integrated really early on. Really a early a on partnership. Yeah. 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 Uh, and you, you work, your company works usually long-term then with your clients. So it's uh, not only uh, reduced to a clinical trial and uh, then moving on. So you can serve uh, the whole value chain from preclinical uh, uh, work up to phase three, phase four studies. We have everything from uh, early phase labs all the way through post-marketing research um, and support of commercialization. Now, I think it's a good thing because the minute the company is funded, there are a lot of people, especially when the company travels to conferences who offer support and uh, bits and pieces. And uh, it's very tempting then to tie everything together as a company uh, in-house uh, but usually this, uh, let's call it self-manufactured clinical trials uh, are bound to fail. So it would be good to have a, a company who can uh, deliver everything from from uh, as a one-stop shop. And Icon is one of those. Icon is one of those. And Icon has, you know, fantastic connections in the finance industry as well and, and can help secure funding as well like that when we talk about partnership we mean true partnership uh you know really wanting to help see the success of our our clients as well so we have uh we talked about uh data we talked about the indications that uh might may and may not be suitable for decentralized clinical trial models uh we talked about uh, new technology that enables clinical trials uh what other factors do you think are necessary for sponsors to think about uh to take into consideration stay with us we'll be right back the coaching conversation 2024 this podcast is 100% dedicated to leadership and leadership within the workplace coaching area. We work with companies throughout the world teaching leaders how to coach their employees. This podcast is dedicated to teaching specific strategies, frameworks, coaching models, and now artificial intelligent strategies to help leaders drive greater teamwork, collaboration, cooperation, greater attitudes, better motivation, coaching career development, just to name a few. I hope you'll check out our podcast. I think, you know, the the other areas that we need to focus in are um, our in-home services and the support services that allow that to, to be successful. So, you know, making sure that we've got the right support services for the patient and for the site. So how do we partner those two together that while their patients aren't going to the site, how do they still feel like they're connected? So by use of nursing in the homes in the appropriate capacity and continuity of that nurse. So they build that relationship there. And then that nurse has that relationship with the physician as well. That's a really key factor. The other key factor is the concierge support team that we have to mm -hmm. offer. Um, that team is the white glove service that really takes the burden of technology and the moving from being on site to at home and helps ease the burden and ease the mind of both physicians and patients by giving them that human element to what can be very technical in nature otherwise, gives them somebody that they can call to and have a conversation with um, helping them to reschedule telehealth appointments, helping them to understand why something's not missing. So we talked about how it helps improve compliance, but it also helps improve the overall relationship um, and engagement with the study as a whole. It's an interesting patient journey. I was just just run it from my mind uh, what we talked about. So you engage these days patients on social media. Uh, 
What about age groups? So when we start, when we talk about the entire patient journey, maybe we walk uh, at the end of the conversation through the patient journey from from the recruitment phase uh, to the treatment phase and also then to the aftercare. Um, do you see any problems with social media approaches uh, when we think about age groups? So you said 90 years old versus 18 years old. Uh, do you? What are the demographics of social media as a recruitment tool? Um, so social media definitely, I think will pull if you, depending upon which platform you go to, will pull on different age demographics. Uh, if you hit things like Twitter and Instagram versus Google and Reddit and Facebook, you've hit different areas. Um, apparently Facebook is no longer cool to use with the uh, <laughs> millennial era. Yeah, um, I go over to Snapchat or Instagram or, and I'm sure those will die out very quickly too. And something else will become the new it, uh, TikTok, for instance. But, but depending upon where you can go, it'll make sure that you're focusing in on the area that you want to hit from that patient perspective. Um, we've also had ads run on podcasts. Um, so while it doesn't necessarily have to be a click, physical click, but more of a an audio, hey, do you have this indication? Are you looking for a new treatment mm -hmm. option? Uh, visit, you know, icon.plc slash whatever your disease is. And they can then access it from that perspective as well. Do you see a difference uh, in social media's engagement tool between Europe and the United States in your data? Um, I think the U.S. tends to be a little heavier with the social media engagement. Um, for Europe, we've used some social media, but we also use a lot of community-based events in Europe as well. That tends to be a really great opportunity for us um, is hitting that community and and it's going out beyond just where the, the general community events would be, but hitting more of the rural area community events as well. So it's really about uh, creating a tailor-made uh, solution for the indication for the company, for the trial, for the drug compound, dependent on age group, dependent on uh, which country the clinical trial should be conducted, the recruitment should happen. Uh, so you take a lot of factors into consideration. Correct. And we come up with an entire recruitment plan around that. We have a whole group that focuses solely on patient recruitment and engagement. And they are a global group and they know what's going to work in Austria versus what might work in Delaware versus what might work in China. Um, mm. So they really focus in and tune it to what is going to hit the need of that individual country, that individual patient, that individual sponsor. That's great. So now let's move a step further to you recruited the patients and uh, then you set up a decentralized clinical trial structure. What, uh, what, how is the patient experience then compared to the old world in that area, in that phase? Um, it's interesting, I think, because there's still the interaction with the physician. So they're not feeling like they're just doing this by themselves. Uh, but now I think it's a little bit more of a change uh, that you have to prove who you are and that you have what you say you have. Um, and there's ways that we've developed that go into to doing that so that we can prove that this person does truly have diabetes, for instance, mm -hmm. um, and that they truly are Emily Mitchell. Uh, those are, are the, I think, shifts that are a little more interesting before you would go to your physician, your physician would say, Hey, Emily, nice to see you. How are you doing with your diabetes? Now it's okay. Are you sure you're Emily Mitchell? Are you sure you have diabetes? So it's a little bit that I think that's a little more of a flip, but once that flip and the proof has happened, other than it being that you're doing it similar to how we're having our podcast conversation now, uh, that's how that's how the shift changes with these patients is maybe I don't have to get in my car and drive to go see my doctor. Instead, I'm going to see them on the computer or on my my handheld device. Um, I can still talk to them about items that are coming up in my care. Uh, it's just now a little easier for me. And if they say, you know what, that sounds pretty serious. Let's schedule you to come in. Or if you're really far away and you happen to be not at home, 
here's where you should go to seek care and here's how you provide that information back to me. What I'm interested in to know, I mean, you mentioned a little bit before, maybe we can talk uh, dig a bit deeper into it. Uh, how to keep patients motivated to just imagine, um, for example, a sleep study. If someone says to me, uh, can you participate in a sleep study? It's about one month. Uh, you don't have to do anything special. You just have to wear your Apple Watch and we track this and that data. And uh, the readout is automated. So you don't have to do anything, but just make sure that you wear your Apple Watch while you are sleeping. I mean, it's not difficult to stay motivated, but I think about uh, more complex studies where the patient has to do more work, or as you said, um, where nurses and doctors stay in my apartment for a month, basically, so they move in. Um, what about patient motivation? Is it is it problematic with decentralized clinical trials? What do you do to keep them motivated to stay in the trial and not just... Uh, make them run away screaming and say, okay, it's too, it's too difficult for me to <laughs> just stop it. Uh, we want to make sure it's not a burden to them. So we mm. want to make sure that they're not having a nurse move in with them for a month, <laughs> but rather, you know, does it make sense for, for this person, this place, this time, this study to have that happen? So um, that's first one. The other thing that tends to motivate people very much is knowing that they're giving back to their disease as well, that their data is having an impact on other people's lives. So being able to provide them an output of their data and how their data is in comparison to others, um, there's two reward factors there. One is the competitive nature. Oh, I'm in the 83rd percentile for my compliance and everybody else is in the 95th. I've got to do better. And the other one is, oh, look at this. My results are actually impacting how other people are receiving treatment and care. And therefore, while we may not be able to cure my disease, it might actually find a cure for somebody down the road. So those are two big motivational factors I don't think we can write off for, for humankind. And that has helped. Um, plus, there's the ability to offer them additional motivation, such as educational information, stipends, depending upon locale of the patients, um, compensating them for their effort and their time that they're contributing back into to the study as well. So when I sum it up in my mind, uh, when you can recruit more patients in decentralized uh, clinical trials, uh, then compared to centralized clinical trials, uh, it might also be not such a problem if uh, a smaller number says, okay, I don't want to continue, I discontinue my participation because you still have a larger patient group anyways. Uh, yes, if it's been built into the protocol in, in such a way, but we've seen that the compliance, because it is easier to participate, they're not really looking to drop out because the ask is usually pretty minimal of them. Wear a sensor, do some forms on your phone, It'll collect the data from your sensor on the phone and send it to us. You don't need to do anything with that. Um, and yes, have a nurse come to your house once a month. Um, if it's going to require a nurse to go to their house every single day for an entire month, <laughs> that might not be worth it. Yeah, if you were a pandemic, it would have been nice to have a little bit of conversation. Um, <laughs> I'm thinking about distractions in the house. I mean, I have two cats. Uh, so... When I have to do something, a certain procedure at the uh, exact same time every day, I might be distracted from my cats or I watch a movie on Netflix and fall asleep and then find out that uh, I'm eight hours later and I missed the point and then I do it and just fake the data. Is this a problem uh, in decentralized clinical trials, distractions? So the usual distractions in the house? Because I mean, clinical trial sites don't distract much. So you are in the process and they do what they do. Um. So in the beginning, you will likely see that there's a, a couple more uh, outside of the traditional expected window. What we want to do is we want to ensure that we're giving them an appropriate time window to complete the assessment. But if it has to be done within two hours, not keeping the, the form available for 12 hours afterwards so mm. that all of a sudden if they go in and they're like, oh, I forgot to do that. Let me do that now and make up the data. Then that's that does no good either. So um, ensuring that we are putting limitations for when that data can be available. And then if we are seeing the misses, having that outreach to them to say, okay, 
We understand it may not have been the most convenient time, but if you can put every effort you can into doing it at the same time or around the same time every single day or every third day, the reminders are on your phone to let you know it will become part of their routine then. That's great. Now let's move to the last part of a clinical trial. So the follow-up. Um, I always remember that you have certain follow-up points, three, six, nine, 12 months, or you have longitudinal, uh, longer running studies. So let's do it this way. Um, and I remember that one of the problems was that people just don't want to drive to the hospitals for years after year when the clinical trial is finished. Do you see the potential for uh, making a difference with decentralized clinical trial models so that people stay longer motivated to deliver data for longer running studies, especially Those in the afternoon? long-term follow-ups are our bread and butter. That is exactly where we wanna see ourselves going in, especially mm -hmm. from a fully decentralized perspective. There's no reason that they should have to drive in. There's no reason they can't use a visit where they already happen to be seeing the physician and getting the blood work drawn then. Or if they have to have an additional blood draw, going to a local lab that's near them and providing those details back over. Um, it should not be that, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months and beyond when they've stopped the treatment of the clinical trial, they should still have to be going back over and over and over again. Um, so that's really where we see the added benefit. And, and you know, what can we do utilizing uh, their health records and tokenization, depending upon country regulations and allowance of that, that we can even passively follow their data and passively have an understanding of what is happening to their care in the general scheme of their daily life around that. I mean, I'm just thinking about the advancements during the pandemic technology-wise uh, in the follow-up of a clinical trial. I mean, you can do a lot of work at home. Uh, home diagnostics, for example, I think before the pandemic, the diagnostic field was not as advanced as it is today. Uh, what advancements do you see in the technology field that help gather also more data, automated uh, data generation in the follow-up phase of a clinical trial? Um, so minimal burden tools such as digital platforms where it can be as simple as clicking a yes, no for, you know, are you still feeling well? Um, do you need to talk to somebody? Um, chat bots, those are a, a huge advancement where they can just reach out and ping if they feel that they need to. Um, the, the digital health technologies that are out there from a from a diagnostic standpoint, like, okay, do we need to do a blood sample? There's now blood samples that you put the pot on the arm and it get, takes the sample and they can just mail it off and it it's collecting it for them and they don't need to leave the home. Blood pressure cuffs, patches and wearables. Um, so many things that we can deploy back out to the patients that allow us to do a one-off remote test uh, that doesn't require that. And that for a long-term follow-up may be a really great solution um, to be able to do what would be a one-off, a travel, a reimbursement, a physician's time versus comfort of home when they have five minutes, sit down and do this and letting them know how long it's going to take them to do it too. I mean, to me, it sounds great. Um, when I think in the old world, centralized clinical trials, they always had the feeling that the patient is more the subject of the trial. Now, from what you explain, it sounds to me like more you make the patient a partner, a member of the team. So the patient becomes a team member. It's much more empowering. Yeah. If they feel like they're contributing and they're, they've been thought of, they're going to be more willing to engage and more willing to participate. Um, and that way we don't have to say, okay, this is what you have to do. It's more, this should be part of what you're already doing. And here's how we get that data from you. Sounds like a great solution to me. How is the response from the industry? I think a lot of folks are very interested in it. Um, they love the concept. They don't want to be the first. Um, <laughs> don't want to be the second. But the more proof points we have out there, the more uh, willingness and acceptance there is um, for for clients to say, you know what, we've seen other folks have done this and it's worked and they've they've gotten 
the data that they were expecting to get and it it followed the time frames that they were expecting it to follow and here's why we should also now follow follow step and and do the same thing ourselves yeah this is the thing with the herd mentality i guess it's always easier to be uh, at the fifth or sixth or seventh place so that other people mm-hmm. tried it already um let me ask you two final questions at the end of our conversation um what the first final question is uh, did i miss anything in this podcast that you would like to talk about or a question that you want me to ask i don't think so i think we covered a lot of great conversation topics that's uh that's good to hear and now let's talk about uh the companies and the people who listen to the podcast and might consider uh reaching out to you and uh start thinking about doing a decentralized clinical trial so evaluate whether their ideas qualify for it what would be a proper first step for them what would you recommend they can visit um iconplc.com or if they have a specific question around decentralization they can email dct support at iconplc.com super will uh edit to the description of the podcast so that uh, everybody who's interested finds a way to you and your team. Emily, thank you very much for this great conversation and uh, explaining to me in clear terms what the potential of decentralized clinical trials are. And it would be great to have a follow-up podcast maybe in a year or so to see what changed in, in your model. That'd be fantastic. Thank you so much. This has been a pleasure. Very easy to talk through. So thank you. Thank you for participating. You had great fun listening to you and learning more about decentralized clinical trials. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye-bye. Did you like the episode? Then please, please follow the podcast. It helps to increase the chance that the algorithm recommends the show to people that may also benefit from it.